Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders in the world to help you scale from 2 million ARR to 100 million ARR. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Ryan Bonici, the CMO at G2. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, Ryan, let's get to know a little bit more about yourself. So, how did you end joining G2? Yeah, so I've been at G2 for, gosh, um, a little over two years now. Um, and I was always really familiar with G2. Um, you know, I've worked for the last decade in software marketing, so SaaS marketing. Um, and so I think, you know, anyone that's worked in SaaS is very kind of well aware of G2 because it's sort of the modern way people buy software today based on peer reviews as opposed to kind of like the old school businesses, which was listening to an analyst, you know, and their recommendation. And the reality is that A, analysts are totally pay to play <laughs> and B, um, just because like an analyst, even if they're not pay to play, thinks one product is good for you. They can't customize that recommendation based on who you are. And that's really where our platform differentiates. So you come to g2.com and you tell us, you know, are you a small, medium enterprise business? What software are you looking for? What kind of budget do you have? What features do you need? And then our platform will recommend the best software for you based on what other people like you have said about the software that they use. It's super customized. So I mentioned that purely because, you know, I was you know, a software marketer for so long. And, um, and yeah, you know, I'd worked at Salesforce and HubSpot and Exact Target and Microsoft. So some pretty, pretty amazing companies that I was really lucky to be a part of. Um, so yeah, just, I was guess, I guess I was like very familiar with G2 um, the entire time. And it was interesting when um, Godard, the CEO, reached out to me about a year before I joined. Um, we had a really great chat. But, um, you know, it really wasn't right for me at that time to leave HubSpot. Uh, and then a year later, you know, he's been still looking for a CMO and interviewing lots of candidates. And no one seems to have clicked with him in the way that we clicked when we first met. So um, he re reconnected and luckily that timing worked for me. So that's kind of, you know, really quickly how I, I guess came to G2. Sounds amazing. And just to give some context to the audience, in, in what stage of growth is G2? So funding rounds in terms of error, if you can disclose an interval in terms of ad count. Yeah, sure. So um, we raised our Series C about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. um, so all up, we've raised about 100 mil um, across seed A, B, and C. Um, you know, some of our lead investors are LinkedIn, Excel, IVP, Emergence, Pritzker. Um, we've got a, a bunch of really amazing um, VCs. Um, what else can I disclose? I guess like, you know, in, in, the, in our last raise, TechCrunch kind of did their calculations and kind of calculated us about a year and a half ago of being valued at around half a billion dollars. Um, so I guess you can kind of like work your way from there around as to what our <laughs> ARR was. Um, in terms of employee size because when I joined two years ago we were, we were about 150 employees and now we're about 450 employees so well pretty dramatic growth um, and the marketing team was about five people when I joined and is now around 50 to 60 ish people got it yeah that's awesome congratulations yeah. sounds Thanks. an, yeah, an amazing well. journey <laughs> yeah it's been a great journey so far I mean I'm really fortunate to work with um, an amazing executive team at G2. 
sort of who you know, our CEO and founder and co-founder. Um, this is his third slash fourth, you know, business that he has started or slash acquired. And, um, you know, he sold his first to Oracle for half a billion and his second to Salesforce for roughly half a billion. So he's really focused on taking G2 public. So it's fun to be on kind of a rocket ship that's really focused on um, IPOing. Got it. Sounds sounds amazing and very interesting that you talk about uh, the amazing executive team that uh, you work with, um, because I, I really believe that uh, I would say even after five million, ten million ARR, it is really the strategies is really no no more the job of the CEO but the job of the leadership team, and this is a very difficult transition. From for any CEO and even for the previous uh, executives who need to think much more as CEOs themselves and uh, get out of their own functional areas of their own business units or geos and, and become the brain of the company and be able to collectively build uh, that strategy. And one of the ingredients that we always discuss on the show is the importance of focus. Uh, especially when the resources are much more available. It is very counterintuitive, that, but that's when the laser focus is so critical. So how I know that you offer different segments, as you said in the beginning, uh, SMBs, mid-markets, uh, enterprise. Uh, I imagine different verticals uh, across um, software, uh, different geos with uh, US and, and Europe. Uh, at least I, I saw you also at... Sastock and Goddard as uh, as well. Um, so, how do you sure focus with so much diversity in terms of verticals, geos, uh, and segments to serve? Yeah, I mean, I guess that I mean, really good point. Focus is definitely something that I think is harder in earlier stage companies because there are so many routes you can go down, right? Um, and even for us today, right, where I'd say we're pretty mature as a company, in, like in the startup world, right, like we're scaling up, absolutely. Um, so we, you know, we have our MVP, we know how to get to profitability, we have all of those items down pat. But at the same time, there's so many other product additions or expansions that we could go down. So, you know, the, the way we try and focus, and it's not always perfect, but we, we oftentimes look at what does is, what is our customer want? And when we think of our customer, We think about the millions of buyers that come to G2.com every week. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we have millions of buyers that are coming to G2.com every week and they're looking for software and services. So to your point, you know, we, you know, you know, by listening to them and looking at what they were searching for on our site, we were able to expand the number of software categories. So now I think we have more than 2,500 categories of software, which is just mind boggling to think, right? Um, so that's, I guess, another area where we differentiate from, you know, analyst firms. Analyst firms wouldn't be able to have an analyst specializing in each of these different areas, whereas we, because we we lean, instead of analysts, we lean on actually real users of software. Um, we can scale up across so many more verticals and so many more industries and so many more software categories so much quicker. Um, so I guess that's one thing. So we listen to our customers. And then we, we ultimately just think about, you know, and, and we look at their journey when they're buying software. So, you know, what are the pain points in buying software? There's so many along the journey and we've solved some of them, but there's still many more that we need to solve. So some of the problems, you know, I think that we've solved is, you know, in the past, if you were looking to buy, let's say, CRM software, 
um, you know, it was really difficult to know who was best for you because if you go on all of the top CRM websites, you know, all of their messaging ultimately looks similar, right? Um, if you look at any email marketing provider, you know, their messaging mm-hmm. looks similar. They've got happy customers. And it's not really until you can actually like listen to the true voice of their customers on mass that you can start to learn from that. So, um, so we looked at, you know, that, that was obviously an important feature and transparency component. We then thought, okay, like now once we've helped people find the best software for them, what's, what happens next? Well, typically they go into like a negotiation where they're discussing pricing, um, features and things like that. And so, you know, that was then another layer that we added onto the G2.com platform was pricing. So, you know, we ask people now when they're leaving reviews, how much they pay for their software, how much that software costs. Is it per head? Is it per email send? If it's email marketing mm-hmm. software, is it per contact in your database? If it's CRM software, right? There's very customized questions dependent on, you know, what the software is that someone is looking to buy. And so, you know, I think... You know, we really do sort of drink our own champagne in the sense of, you know, we, we encourage software companies to leverage their customers' voice because that's the most powerful way they can sell to their future customers, right? Word of mouth marketing is really kind of where marketing began. And I think we're kind of coming back to 360 on that, whereby people are realizing if they just buy based on marketing alone, they're going to buy something that isn't the best fit for them. And so, you know, we're coming kind of back to that. So, yeah, I think when we think about focus, we, we ultimately think about what is the most critical thing a buyer needs when buying software, and then we kind of prioritize accordingly. Got it. Sounds, sounds amazing. And in terms of your own function, uh, in terms of marketing, um, you, you gave a very good interview uh, with uh, Aris Tabbings uh, at the Saster uh, podcast where you talk about uh, owning revenue and uh, you, I, I follow you on, on LinkedIn and, and Twitter and you, you talk a lot about results and achieving results as, as something very important for you in your career. And of course, having a good balance between achieving results and, and treating well people and uh, also understanding that having the right people on the right seats will deliver uh, results. Um, so. And we have this kind of dilemma between the short-term and the long-term projects and impacts of, of, of marketing. So what is your position about this mix of short and long-term owning revenue, not owning revenue and influencing revenue? Yeah, good questions. So I think for me, because there's a few part of things to unpack, I guess, in that question. Um, you know, I think if, if we focus on like short-term versus long-term, I mean, I think anyone starting in any role, um, you know, needs to be thinking about both. Um, and what I mean there is, right, when you're a new leader coming into a team, whether that's a new sales leader or whether that's a new marketing leader or a product leader, um, typically you're hired as a leader because of your vision, right? Like you're the fact that you can get the long-term team, the long-term product, the long-term strategy, you know, really kind of like cruising really well. But then you're also hired as well because, you know, you in, in theory, your experience and your ability to recognize patterns will allow you to enter a business and really quickly be able to implement some tactics that you just know will lift boats quickly. Mm -hmm. So, so I think of it that like, you know, I think when you're joining a new company, you've got like 90 days to show some really quick wins and, and, those wins can be on, they can be on the relationship side and they can be on the results side. And ideally you want both. So I talk a lot about this idea in business of like, 
needing to balance building relationships and driving results. Right. And I think, you know, that was something that I learned, you know, earlier on in my career, I probably over-indexed on results at the expense of relationships. So I think, you know, I was able to accelerate really quickly as an individual contributor and always drive results. But then as I started to become a manager and move up in management, I didn't really understand the importance of building cross-functional relationships. So I was always kind of focused on building relationships with my team, no doubt, because I needed my team to help drive results. But I probably, you know, over-indexed on that as opposed to like relationships with other teams and how I could, you know, integrate with other teams and help them succeed as well. And so, anyway, the reason why I mentioned that is, you know, if you enter a business and all you do is focus on in like the first 90 days on building relationships, um, that could be a win in some senses, right? Like when I joined G2, there wasn't a very strong relationship between sales and marketing, as an example. Um, mm -hmm. Marketing would often book trade shows for conferences without mm -hmm. speaking to sales to see if sales would even want to work a booth at that conference. Um, so there was a mm -hmm. massive disconnect there. So that was a really quick way I was able to start to, you know, build and have a quick win on the relationship side. But at the end of the day, though, like relationships only take you so far because, you know, you need to see results as well. Um, and so, you know, I think whenever I join a company, luckily I've worked at a lot of different companies now where I've seen, I've got kind of like pattern recognition. So when I see certain problems, you know, you know, do we, is, is our traffic creating a problem? Is it our conversion rate that's driving a problem? Is it our, you know, our sales demo where there's a problem in terms of the conversion process? Like I can start to like look at those problems and then I can recognize like what solution will quickly fit in to fix that. Um, Yes, I think I've answered part of your question anyways around kind of like long-term versus short-term. I think you, you, you need to drive both essentially. And that's why as a leader, you're paid more and you have more stress. That's because like you need to think about like what are some quick wins that you can deliver on as well as, you know, how do you deliver on those quick wins while building for the future? Right. Um, and then, yeah, managing and balancing relationships and results, I think is yeah. key. And the second part was related with uh, owning or not owning um, revenue. If I if I remember well, you talked that uh, you were responsible for a specific segment, small business, and you won the revenue targets there from marketing. Yeah, and I, look, I think there's there's it's hard in B two it's hard in a B two B company to ever to ever fully own revenue, right? Because <laughs> of the fact that there's typically a sales team. Um, the way I like to think of it typically for most B2B businesses is that, you know, you own like building demand for a portion of revenue. So right. I think what I talked to Harry a, a, a little bit about was that, um, you know, so we have different segments that we sell to, we sell to, you know, growth stage companies, we sell to kind of like mid market companies, we sell to enterprise companies, we're, and we're really evenly split across all of those companies that we sell to. Um, and what we find is, you know, for those smaller segments, marketing can drive anywhere from 50 to 80% of the revenue. And when I, when I say drive, what I mean, you know, to be really technical is, I mean, we source the revenue. So marketing is the kind of function that gets those smaller and, and mid-market companies to raise their hand to say, hey, you know, I want to speak to one of your consultants. I want to learn more. Um, so When we think of MQLs, we think of someone explicitly raising their hand to speak to it to a salesperson. 
Um, that's not to say we don't do a lot of work also to, to expand our database and to drive more and more leads, but I would never hand over a lead to a sales rep under kind of the guise of it being an MQL because if the salesperson starts to call these leads and then they don't want to speak to sales, that then hurts my relationship with sales because it looks like I'm handing over things and I'm ready to speak to them. So, so I guess that sourcing kind of is really important to me because I want it to be really clear to sales that, you know, if it wasn't for marketing, you wouldn't have had these deals because like you didn't know they were wanting to shop. And so we drove those, those kind of like demo requests for you. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think like as you move up market into bigger deals, you know, if I think of our enterprise team, right, we might have, you know, a handful of people and each of them might be focused on 10, you know, huge enterprise fortune 500 accounts. Right. Um, now, the reality there is that marketing most likely isn't ever going to source a deal. We might, right? But even if we do source a deal, it's going to be rather hard to measure that. And the reason why is that, you know, if you think of most B2B sales functions, they will create opportunities for Fortune 500 companies in whatever CRM they're using. And they will create those opportunities to then take notes on the opportunity to then you know, add contacts to the opportunity as they are speaking to different parts of those businesses. And so it's hard for marketing in my world to ever source, like source, and I'm air quoting when I say that, um, mm -hmm. those opportunities, because, you know, they're, they're typically deals that reps have been working maybe three, six, nine, 12, or even 24 months to kind of like close. So they're just much more long-term. So in the enterprise space, you know, my team measures their effectiveness based on, engagement into those accounts so are we adding new contacts at those senior accounts uh, are we driving engagement from those contacts at those accounts whether that is you know inviting them to a cmo dinner or to um you know a chicago cubs game where we have a vip box or you know are we sending direct mail to certain people in that company to, to engage and create new relationships and new conversations um, but ultimately, I think for me, and this has always been a really important thing for me in my career, is the closer I and my team can be to revenue, the more the more successful we're going to be because we're going to drive the thing that matters most to the business. Um, and it's not just that revenue matters most to the business, it's, a, it's that like revenue that's going to retain itself matters most, right? So happy customers. So, yeah, that's sort of how I think about it. And, and I think what's important when you align yourself to revenue and results in that way, you're making it really easy to make sure that you get promotions and that you get raises and that you earn more money because, you know, you're completely aligned to the revenue drivers of the business. Yeah. Got it. So in order to shift those kind of um, two, three X or even five X growth, uh, we were discussing the first ingredient to scale in, in our show, which is focus. Um, and so let, let's move to the second one, which is all related with team that we already touched in, in the beginning of, um, of the podcast. And in, in the team uh, component, what, what we see of uh, high-performing teams, uh, as we were discussing before, is when the team can think about the company as a whole and the interest of the company again is to drive that value, to build that category, to, um, to, to, to achieve um, results and, and to work together. So what, what are the main differences from leading a team of 
five uh, and now uh, of 60 with middle managers nowadays and with a different structure to, um, to lead. So what are the main changes of mindsets and of your own practices that you need to, to make in order to become a, a CMO for this 4.0 or 5.0 stage of the company? Yeah. Good question. Um, look, I mean, I think when, if you think of a small team, I mean, there's pros and cons of all size teams. There's things mm -hmm. I love about, you know, a five person team and then things I dislike and vice versa for a 50 person team. Um, you know, I think what's, what's really nice when you're in a small team is that um, communication flows really naturally, right? Typically everyone is sitting mm -hmm. together. Everyone's in the loop. Information isn't siloed. Everyone knows what everyone is working on. Um, so that's some of the nice things. Some of the downsides though, is that you typically have more generalists on your team, people <laughs> that can do multiple things. And what happens I find when people can do multiple things is, you know, no fault of their own, but they don't do them as well because they're not experts in their fields. <laughs> you know, so if you have, you know, you might have a field marketer that's running big events, small events, direct mail, digital advertising, email marketing, um, and the reality is like, they don't have time to do all of those things incredibly well, most likely because they don't have enough time to really sink their teeth into the space mm -hmm. and to start to experiment. You know, they're typically quite busy in, in a small stage, um, you know, team. So, so that's, I guess, the other con side of the house. If you think then, you know, when you're scaling a team up right now with 50 people, the reality is, you know, I don't get to speak to every person on my team every day every week, maybe every month, right? Um, and so because of that, you need to be really, I guess, kind of um, intentional about communication um, and about processes so that like everyone on the team understands why you're doing what you're doing, how you're going to communicate with them, what frequency you will meet with them. So, you know, as an example, right, I have on some of our teams, we have sort of three core teams in marketing at G2. So I have... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a content and SEO team led mm -hmm. by, you know, a really remarkable leader um, called Kevin Indig from Atlassian. We hired him about a year ago. Um, and, you know, he has, you know, a, a dozen up to two dozen sort of folks under him focused on creating content to, you know, increase traffic and buyers to our site. Um, we then have a demand gen team run by another amazing leader called Adam Goyette, um, we were some Thrive, you know, an online CRM platform, similar to HubSpot, actually. Um, he has, you know, a dozen or so folks under him focused on much more traditional B2B marketing. So how do we, mm -hmm. you know, enable our sales reps to have more and more deals to work? How do we accelerate those deals? How do we increase the conversion rate of those deals in terms of closing? And then our third and final sort of team in marketing is uh, is called Brand and Buzz, and it's run by another, you know, super remarkable leader on the team. Her name's Lauren Decker. She and I worked together at Exact Target and Salesforce. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think for me, when I think of building teams, the most important thing to me when I joined was how do I build a really strong kind of like second level leadership team? Mm -hmm. Because I think at the end of the day, if you're if you need to be involved in everything, if I need to be involved in everything that my team's doing in every decision. A, I would never sleep. B, I would probably be really depressed <laughs> because I wasn't sleeping and probably because I wasn't living my life outside of work. Um, and also, like, you know, that's just, like, ineffective because my team can't move fast and if I need to be involved in everything. So really hiring an amazing second-line leadership team for me was key. And, you know, I'm really, really uh, lucky to work with 
uh, Lauren, Adam and Kevin because they're all just remarkable and realistically they don't need me at all. <laughs> like I could go on vacation for probably three months and I would come back and things would be fine, if not better than when I left, I'm sure. Um, and so I think, you know, hiring a really remarkable leadership team is, is something that I really pride myself on. And it's something that I hear often from my team is that like, you know, from them, they feel like, you know, a superpower of mine is like finding really great people, um, which mm-hmm. is a really nice thing to hear, obviously, because, you know, you are nothing without your team. So I think a lot about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it looks totally different, right? Like my job now at G2, two years in versus when I started. When I started, I was setting up, you know, email nurture campaigns in HubSpot. <laughs> you know, I was building kind of workflows for tasks in Asana. Um, and I was, you know, meeting directly with sales reps to learn from them and their customers. You know, and now I, you know, and now I get every now and then to kind of like dabble in some of those places. But more so, I think my job is actually to take a step back often from the day-to-day, the busy work, and actually focus on like learning from everyone else around me at other companies so that then I can find cool ideas and impactful ideas from other companies and bring that into my team. So as an example, right, you know, you know I, I take Wednesday every week and I work from home on Wednesday and I have like a policy where I don't do any meetings in the day. Mm-hmm. which I almost always kind of keep by, but sometimes, you know, if it's urgent, I'll take a meeting. Um, and that's really like a day, like if I think of yesterday, um, you know, I listened to probably like five different podcasts. I read a bit of a book. I reply to people on oh. Slack when they need things, but it's like, it's like my day to not work in the traditional sense of the word on busy things, but actually to, to work on like sharpening my skill set as a leader, you know, as a marketer, as a board advisor, um, and to learn from other really amazing people out there, much better than me from, you know, what I can then bring from them into my team. Um, and, you know, if I think back two years, there's no way in hell I would have been able to take, you know, Wednesday working from home when I had five people on my team, right? Like we were too busy. <laughs> but um, but now I can do that. And, and I think it's actually so important that I do do that because if I don't, um, I'm not going to be getting better and I'm not then going to be bringing newer ideas to my team to think bigger and better. So they're just some of the things I guess I think about. Um, you know, I, I think it's also really important to build a team that, um, that really thrives off of feedback and um, is constantly giving and receiving feedback because I think um, that's just the most important way that I've grown in my career. Um, and I think if you can build a team that like is really great at giving and receiving feedback, then you know you might make mistakes. You know, we all will, but you'll be able to learn from them really quickly and, and excel really, really fast. Yeah. And you have uh, introduced the, um, the last ingredient, a critical ingredient in your opinion to scale, which is all about uh, culture, that shared vision, that shared values, that, that, that culture of feedback, those values of, of being frank and, um, and of having radical candor with each other. Um, do you have any any practices or any rhythms that are really useful for you to have everyone on the same page and, and to develop culture uh, with your team. You were talking previously about some of the rituals that you have for yourself and to develop your yourself. So in order to develop your team, do, there are any rituals or any rhythms that are working quite well for you? Um. Question. So, I mean, I think for like developing the team, I mean, so I, you know, I meet with all of my direct reports. So Lauren, um, 
Kevin and Adam every week for an hour. Um, that's really important to me. Um, and, and they really guide the direction of those one-on-ones. So they're, they're more for them than they are for me, I think. Um, and sometimes they'll ping me and say, hey, like, I feel good. I don't, I don't think there's anything super important to catch up on. Let's just get 60 minutes back into my day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a, one important thing. I'm always, I, I want to always be available for them. Um, and, and again, not that they really ever need that, but if they do, I think they know that I'm always there. Um, I guess some other kind of rituals or processes that I put through is that I then once a month will meet with all of their managers. So they all have managers under them who then manage people under them and they may even have other managers under them. Um, but I'll typically meet with every manager under my direct reports once a month, just for 30 minutes. Um, again, not super structured. It's really more of a way for them to kind of kind of get vis- visibility into what I'm focused mm-hmm. on, what I'm caring about, um, and for them to kind of run me through some of the, the cool things that they're working on, right? It's like a, a, an opportunity for them to, to show the, the great work that they're doing um, because I think I think that's an important thing for folks that are typically like a level below, you know, the, the VP level or even below director level to be able to get that face time with leadership. Um, but also to be able to kind of like learn what's top of mind for me, because I'll, I'll, I might give them feedback a bit differently than the way their manager would give them. And so I think that's something that's in, that, that became important to me. I think once the team grew at G2, because I realized that, you know, if I communicated a message down to people below me and then they communicated that down to people below them and then they communicated that down to people below them, the message starts to get lost, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, and what I find is, especially with like more junior managers that are newer, is they typically struggle to give constructive feedback to their teams. Um, and I'm pretty like frank and pretty direct. And, and, and I really care though as well about giving feedback. So you mentioned radical candor before, you know, I'm a massive fan of Kim Scott's, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of methodology. Um, You know, I think you can really be candid with your team, assuming that they know that you care about them. Right. Um, And so I try and, you know, really um, showcase that by my actions. that I do really care about them. Um, But I find, you know, I think when I started giving direct feedback to people, you know, at a few levels lower than me, you know, initially I think that was sort of surprising for them because, you know, they weren't used to getting feedback. And then I think over time they started to really appreciate it because sometimes they weren't getting as direct feedback from their own managers. Um, and so I'll then, if I am giving that kind of a feedback, whether it's digitally by email or in person, I'll then share that, what feedback I gave to that person with that person's manager. Um, mm-hmm. So if it's an email, like I'll just forward the email thread, you know, and I try and do that so that the managers themselves can see how I am kind of giving feedback to people below them. And I think over time that is that that encourages them and empowers them to give more and more feedback themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's there are a few of the things. Let me think what else there is. Um, you know, I think I try and um, you know, so once a week I'll have all of my direct reports share with me, you know a bunch of different things that their teams are working on, what they're excited about, any roadblocks that they're facing. And they share that with me on a Friday, but then on Monday morning when I meet with our senior leadership team, so the rest of our C-suite, so when I meet with our chief product officer, our chief research officer, our chief executive officer, our CFO, and all those 
I kind of a know like what are the exciting things, the impactful things that my team has just delivered that I can share to to then build the personal brands of the people on my team and help them get validation and credibility with the C-suite. Um, but then I also will then flag questions or asks or needing help that my team needs with the C-suite as well. So that's been something that like has been really helpful actually just to get into a routine of every Friday that my direct report is giving me an email or, a, or an update in Slack of just like those things that then I go in on Monday and I'm prepared. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what other things there are. I mean, I, I, I think just the most important thing with kind of building culture and teams is really to sort of um, to practice what you preach. And like, if you don't do it, like you can't expect your teams to do it. So I think, you know, I, I try and manage my team in a really autonomous way whereby I, you know, 95% of the time I'm not, I'm not breathing down their necks um, in terms of micromanaging them. Um, you know, I really, you know, think if you hire great people, they'll just do great work. Um, and, you know, if you're seeing that someone isn't doing great work, like, you know, it's your job as a manager to very quickly share that feedback with them and, and show them as well and help them see like what great work looks like. So I wouldn't just say to someone like, this work sucks. I would say, so look, I think this work sucks. No, no offense. Right. Um, here are some examples of like what I think is really, really good. And here is why, because of this, this, this. Um, so can you take that and build that into your draft to number two? Um, yeah, that is like some of the things I think about, but look, I think at the end of the day, when it comes to culture and team, I think, I think you don't, you don't have to think about it as much if you hire really great people because they will just infect everyone around them with great culture. And I see that, you know, when I hire, when I, when I've found really amazing people and I add them on the team and they bring the team average up. Um, you just very quickly see everyone wants to be like them. They, they can see from looking how great these people are. And then that's the best way, I think, to help drive change around culture and, and teamwork. Absolutely. Sounds amazing. And I love that uh, very important insight that you shared with, with the audience today, uh, which we, as leaders, we, we tend to make this mistake a lot of times. And, and we really need to leverage and write this down and avoid it, uh, which is um, don't manage by expectations. Uh, just uh, be clear about what is the goal, what is the vision, what are the standards that we are playing uh, with. So because a lot of times we are thinking so much about certain things and about certain concepts that we believe that our team is on our ads and unfortunately they are not. So that's why repetition is so critical in a leadership position, repeating, 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 and not expecting nothing, but just giving uh, the standards and letting them feel what the vision looks like. Yeah, I think so too. And I, and I think I'm, you know, I think I, I'm lucky cause you know, I'm a, I'm a marketer, but I also consume lots of content and so I get targeted probably more than anyone on Instagram and LinkedIn. And I'm just seeing lots of examples of really good content and really bad content. And, you know, oftentimes bad content you won't see, right? Because the algorithms won't bring that to the top because they're not getting engagement. Um, and so I think I try, I try and do a really good job at whenever I see something that I think is cool that caught my attention, I will share that with the people, the person on my team responsible for that same function on our team. So for example, 
I think you had maybe someone from Clearbit on your podcast recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Clearbit did a really interesting Instagram story ad recently that they're still doing that I loved. Um, and the format was basically, you know, there it was a marketer on their team and he was basically like kind of recording a selfie video. And he talked about kind of, you know, the challenge of leads and how if you ask too many questions on a form, you know, it'll decrease conversion. And obviously, you know, they're selling that, you know, if you use Clearbit, you won't need to ask as many questions on your form because, you know, yeah. we can repopulate that for you. And, you know, what they were selling, I didn't really care for as much. We use Clearbit. I'm a, I'm a fan. But it was more like the format of the ad I liked. And it was that it was a person looking directly at the camera. It was in, you know, a vertical format, which worked perfectly for Instagram stories. And because of those things, it, it made the video look as if it was just a regular person, a friend of mine recording a video, which naturally catches your attention because you don't think it's marketing and advertising. And I think if I try and teach my team anything, it's that like the less you can make your work look like marketing, <laughs> the better it will do, right? So that's why that's why sending a plain text email typically works so much better than sending, you know, a super designed email with fancy graphics. The fancy graphics tell the viewer that this is marketing. Whereas when it's plain text, they need to read the plain text to see like, is it my boss or is it, you know, who is this emailing me? <laughs> Same for like an ad, right? If, if there's fancy animations in a video on screen, immediately they know, okay, this is like a business's video. But if it's a person looking at the camera in a format that looks like it could be, you know, one of your friends, you'll stop and look a little bit longer, which will increase conversion rates. Yeah. So it's sort of, I guess that's like, you know, when I see those things, that's like a lesson that I notice. And then I try and, I guess, recognize the pattern. Why did this thing catch my attention? What are the components of it that uh, made it really special? And then I'll share that with my team and why I thought it was good. And so the more I, I do that daily, <laughs> which probably annoys them. Um, but my hope is that like it, it also inspires them to think differently. That's amazing. And we come to our favorite question and, and the last one of the show, which is if you have the opportunity to meet Ryan uh, at the beginning of his journey at G2, what advice would you offer to, to Ryan? Um, hmm, that's a good one. Um, you know, I probably, you know, I mentioned earlier kind of the idea of like balancing relationships and results. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, when I joined G2, it was my first CMO role. So I felt a lot of pressure to deliver results and deliver results quickly. Um, and I think I, I, and I'm sorry, I don't just think like, no, I over-indexed results at the expense Mm -hmm. of relationships. Um, so, you know, it's easy in hindsight to say that, you know, if I would go back, I would do it again differently and I hope I could do it again differently. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm really happy with where I am right now as well. So I don't know. I think I would have told myself maybe to not be as hard on myself about driving results as quickly as I, as I thought I wanted them. Um, so that I didn't, you know, um, I, so that I didn't kind of not put coins in the relationship bank for some of the relationships at G2, um, which, yeah, that's probably my, that would probably be my lesson for <laughs> future an, like executives moving into executive roles. That's, that's an amazing way of closing the show. Ryan, thanks so much for making our time to share your experience with us today. Thanks for having me, Mike.
And to our community, thanks for being there. And we keep here bringing you the best of the best so you can leverage their lessons and avoid their mistakes to scale from 2 million to 100 million as, quicker, as quickly as possible. So see you soon and keep scaling.